Section 18 of Just 16. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Just 16 by Susan Coolidge. A Child of the Sea Folk. The great storm of 1430 had done its worst. For days the tempest had raged on land and sea, and when at last the sun struggled through the clouds, broken now and flying in angry masses before the strong sea wind, his beams revealed a scene of desolation. All along the coast of Friesland the dikes were down, and the salt water washing over what but for a few days before had been vegetable gardens and fertile fields. The farmhouses on the higher ground stood each on its own little island, as it were, with shallow waves breaking against the walls of barns and stone sheepfolds lower down on the slopes. Already busy hands were at work repairing the dikes. Men in boats were wading up to their knees in mud and water. Men swimming their horses across the deeper pools were carrying materials and urging on the work. But many days must pass before the damage could be made good. And meanwhile, how were people to manage for food and firing, with the peat stacks under water, and the cabbages and potatoes spoiled by the wet? There is just this one thing, said Metcherheit to her sister Jacqueline. Little Karen shall have her cup of warm milk tonight if everybody else goes without supper. On that I am determined. That will be good, but how can Sam manage it? asked Jacqueline. A gentle placid girl of sixteen with a rosy face and a plait of thick fair hair hanging down to her waist Metje was a year younger but she ruled her elder sister with a rod of iron by virtue of her superior activity and vivacity of mind i shall manage it in this way i shall milk the electoral princess but she is drowned objected jacqueline opening wide a pair of surprised blue eyes drowned not at all she is on that little hump of land over there which looks like an island but is really neighbor livard's high clover patch i mean to row out and milk her and thou shalt go with me art thou sure that she is the electoral princess and not any other cow asked jacqueline sure have i not a pair of eyes in my head sure don't i know the twist of our own cow's horns oh jacky jacky what were thy blue saucers given thee for? Thee never seemest to use them to purpose. However, come along. Karen must not want for her milk any longer. The mother was making some gruel water for her when I came away, and Karen did not like it and was crying. Some wading was necessary to reach the rowboat, which fortunately had been dragged up to the great barn for repairs before the storm began, and so had escaped the fate which had befallen most of the other boats in the neighbourhood, of being swept out to sea in the reflux of the first furious tide. The barn was surrounded by water now, but it was nowhere more than two or three inches deep, and pulling off their wooden shoes, the sisters splashed through it with merry laughter. Like most Friesland maidens, they were expert with the oar and though the waves were still rough they made their way without trouble to the wet green slope where the electoral princess was grazing raising her head from time to time to utter a long melancholy moo of protest at the long delay of her milkers very glad she was to see the girls 
and she rubbed her head contentedly against Jacqueline's shoulder, while Metje, with gentle, skilful fingers, filled the pail with foaming milk. Now stay quietly and go on eating friend Livard's clover, since no better may be, she said, patting the cow's red side. The water is going down, the dikes are rebuilding. Presently we will come and take thee back to the home field. Meanwhile, each day Jackie and I will row out and milk thee, so be a good cow and stay contentedly where thou art. What can that be? Jacqueline asked after the sisters had proceeded a short distance on their homeward way. What? That thing over there, and she pointed toward a distant pool, some quarter of a mile from them, and still nearer to the sea. It looks like... like... Oh, Metje, do you think it can be someone who has been drowned? No, for it moves, it lifts its arm, said Metje, shading her eyes from the level rays of the sun, and looking steadily seaward. It is a girl, she is caught by the tide in the pool. Row, Jacqueline, row. The tide turns in half an hour, and then she will be drowned indeed. The water was very deep out there last night when the flood was full. I heard Voss say so. The heavy boat flew forward, for the sisters bent to the oars with all their strength. Jacqueline turned her head from time to time, to judge of their direction and the distance. "'It's no neighbour,' she answered as they drew nearer. "'It is no one I ever saw before. Metje, it is the strangest-looking maiden you ever saw. Her hair is long, so long, and her face is wild to look upon. I am afraid.' Never mind her hair. We must save her, however long it is, gasped Metje, breathless from the energy of her exertions. Steady now, Jackie. Here we are. Hold the boat by the reeds. Girl, I say girl, do you hear me? We are come to help you. The girl, for a girl it was who half sat, half floated in the pool, raised herself out of the water as one alive and stared at the sisters without speaking. She was indeed a wild and strange-looking creature, quite different from any one that they had ever seen before. "'Well, are you going to get into the boat?' cried Metje. "'Are you deaf, maiden, that you do not answer me? You'll be drowned presently, though you swam like forty fishes. For the tide will be coming in like fury through yon breach in the dike. Here, let me help you. Give me your hand.' The strange girl did not reply, but she seemed to understand a part, at least, of what was said to her. She moaned, her face contracted as if with pain, and raising herself still farther from the water with an effort, she indicated by signs that she was caught in the mud at the bottom of the pool, and could not set herself free. This was a serious situation, for, as Metchi well knew, the mud was deep and adhesive. She sat a moment in thought then took her oar forced the boat still nearer and directing jacqueline to throw her weight on the farther edge to avoid an upset she grasped the cold hands which the stranger held out and exerting her full strength drew her from the mud and over the side of the boat it rocked fearfully under her weight the milk splashed from the pail but the danger was over in half a minute and the rescued girl exhausted and half dead lay safely in the bottom dear me she will freeze cried jacqueline hastily for the poor thing they had saved was without clothing save for the long hair which hung about her like a mantle here metje i can spare my cloak 
to wrap round her limbs, and she must put on thy jacket. We will row the harder to keep ourselves warm. Rowing hard was indeed needful, for, summer as it was, the wind, as the sun sank, blew in icy gusts from the Zetland Zee, whirling the sailless windmills rapidly round, and sending showers of salt spray over the walls of the sheepfolds and other outlying enclosures. The sisters were thoroughly chilled before they had pulled the boat up to the place of safety, and helped the half-drowned stranger across the wet slope of grass to the house door. Their mother was looking out for them. "'Where hast thou been, children?' she asked. "'Ah!' with a look of satisfaction as Metje slipped the handle of the milk-pail between her fingers. "'That is well. Little Karen was wearying for her supper. "'But who hast thou here?' looking curiously at the odd figure whom her daughters were supporting. "'Oh, mother, it is a poor thing that we saved from drowning in that pool over there,' explained Metje, pointing seaward. She is a stranger, from far away it must be, for she understands not our speech, and answers nothing when we ask her questions. Dear me, what should bring a stranger here at this stormy time? But whoever she is, she must needs be warmed and fed. And the good Rao hurried them all indoors, where a carefully economised fire of peats was burning. The main stock of peats was under water still, and it behooved them to be careful of what remained, the father had said. We shall have to lend her some clothes, said Metje, in an embarrassed tone. Hers must have been lost in the water somehow. Perhaps she went in to bathe, and the tide carried them away, suggested Jacqueline. Bathe? In a tempest such as there has not been in my time? Bathe? Thou art crazed, child. It is singular, most singular. I don't like it, muttered the puzzled mother. Well, what needs be must be. Go and fetch thy old stuffed petticoat, Metcher, and one of my homespun shifts. And there's that old red jacket of Jacqueline's. She must have that, I suppose. Make haste before the father comes in. It was easier to fetch the clothes than to persuade the strange girl to put them on. She moaned. She resisted. She was as awkward and ill at ease as though she had never worn anything of the sort before. Now that they scanned her more closely, there seemed something very unusual about her make. Her arms hung down like flippers, Metra whispered to her sister. She stumbled when she tried to walk alone. It seemed as though her feet, which looked only half-developed, could scarcely support her weight. For all that, when she was dressed with her long hair dried, braided, and bound with a scarlet ribbon, there was something appealing and attractive in the poor child's face. She seemed to like the fire, and cowered close to it. When milk was offered her, she drank with avidity, but she would not touch the slice of black bread which Metje brought, and instead caught up a raw shellfish from a pail full which Vorst had scooped out of the pool of seawater which covered what had been the cabbage bed, and ate it greedily. The mother looked grave as she watched her, and was troubled in her mind. "'She seems scarce human,' she whispered to Metje, drawing her to a distant corner, though indeed they might have spoken aloud with no fear of being understood by the stranger, who evidently knew no Dutch. She is like no maiden that I ever saw. Perhaps she is English, suggested Metje, who had never seen anyone from England, but had vaguely heard that it was an odd country quite different from Friesland. The mother shook her head. She is not English, 
I have seen one English that time that my father and I went to Harlem about thy granduncle's inheritance. It was a woman, and she was not at all like this girl. Metra, but thou wouldst laugh, and Father Petri might reprove me for vain imaginations. I should guess her to be one of those mere maidens of whom our forefathers have told us. There are such creatures. My mother's great aunt saw one with her own eyes and wrote it down, and my mother kept the paper. Often I have read it over. It was off the Texel. Could she really be that? Why, it would be better, more interesting, I mean, than to have her an Englishwoman, cried Metcher. We would teach her to spin, to knit. She should go with us to church and learn the Ave. Would it not be a good and holy work, mother, to save the soul of a poor wild thing from the waves where they know not how to pray? Perhaps, replied the Frau, doubtfully. She could not quite accustom herself to her own suggestion, yet could not quite dismiss it from her mind. The father and Voss now came in, and supper, delayed till after its usual time by the pressing needs of the stranger, must be got ready in haste. Metje fell to slicing the black loaf, Jacqueline stirred the porridge, while the mother herself presided over the pot of cabbage soup which had been stewing over the fire since early morning. Voorst, meanwhile, having nothing to do but to wait, sat and looked furtively at the strange girl. She did not seem to notice him, but remained motionless in the chimney corner, only now and then giving a startled sudden glance about the room, like some wild creature caught in a trap. Voorst thought he had never seen anything so plaintive as her large, frightful eyes, or so wonderful as the thick plait of hair which, as she sat, lay on the ground, and was of the strangest pale colour, like flax on which a greenish reflection is accidentally thrown. It was no more like Metcher's ruddy locks, or the warm fairness of Jacqueline's braids, than moonlight is like dairy butter, he said to himself. Supper ready, Metcher took the girl's hand and led her to the table. She submitted to be placed on a wooden stool, and looked curiously at the bowl of steaming broth which was set before her but she made no attempt to eat it and seemed not to know the use of her spoon metje tried to show her how to hold it but she only moaned restlessly and as soon as the family moved after the father had pronounced the latin grace which father petri taught all his flock to employ she slipped from her seat and stumbled awkwardly across the floor toward the fire which seemed to have a fascination for her poor thing she seems unlearnt in christian ways said goodman tight but later when his wife confided to him her notion as to the stranger's uncanny origin he looked perplexed crossed himself and said he would speak to the priest in the morning it was no time for fetching heathen folks into homes he remarked still less those who were more fish than folk as for mermaids if such things there might be they were no better in his opinion than dolphins or mackerel, and he did not care to countenance them. Father Petri was duly consulted. He scouted the mermaid theory, and, as the vrouw had foreboded, gave her a reprimand for putting such ideas into the mind of her family. The girl was evidently a foreigner from some distant country, he said. A Turk, it might be, or a daughter of that people, descended from Ishmael who held rule in the land of the Holy Sepulchre. 
all the more it became a duty to teach her Christian ways and bring her into the true fold, and he bade Goodman Height to keep her till such time as her friends should be found, to treat her kindly and make sure that she was brought regularly to church and taught religion and her duty. There was no need of this admonition as to kindness. Frau Height could hardly have used a stray dog less tenderly, and as for Jacqueline and Metje, they looked upon the girl as their own special property, and were only in danger of spoiling her with overindulgence. Ebba, they called her, as they knew no name by which to address her, and in course of time she learned to recognise it as hers and to answer it. Answer by looks and signs, that is, for she never learned to speak, or to make other sound than inarticulate moans and murmurs, except a wild sort of laughter, and now and then, when pleased and contented, a low humming noise like an undeveloped song. From these the family could guess at her mood, and her expressive looks and gestures they made shift to understand her wishes, and she, in turn, comprehended their meaning, half by observation, half by instinct. But closer communication was not possible, and the lack of a common speech was a barrier between them, which neither she nor they could overcome. Gradually, dumb Ebba, as the neighbours called her, was taught some of the thrifty household arts in which Dame Height excelled. She learned to spin, and though less expertly, to knit, and could be trusted to stir whatever was set upon the fire to cook, and not let it burn or boil over. When the family went to mass, she went too, limping along with, with painful slowness on her badly formed feet, and she bowed her head and knelt with the rest, but how much or how little she understood they could not tell. Except on Sundays she never left the house. Her first attempts at doing so were checked by Metje, who could not dismiss from her memory what her mother had said, and was afraid to let her charge so much as look toward the tempting blue waves which shone in the distance. And after a while Ebba seemed to realise that she was, so to speak, a kindly treated captive, and resigned herself to captivity. Little Karen was the only creature whom she played with. Sometimes, when busied with the child, she was noticed to smile, but for everyone else her face remained pitifully sad, and she never lost the look of a wild, imprisoned thing. So two years passed, and still dumb Ebba remained, unclaimed by friends or kindred, one of the friendly height household. The dikes were long since rebuilt. The electoral princess had come back to her own pasture-ground and fed there contentedly, in company with two of her own calves, but the poor sea-stray whom Metje had pulled into the boat that stormy night remained speechless, inscrutable, a mystery and a perplexity to her adopted family. But now a fresh interest arose to rival Ebba's claims on their attention. A wooer came for pretty Jacqueline. It was young Hans Polder, son of a thrifty miller in the neighbourhood, and himself owner of one of the best windmills in that part of Friesland. Jacqueline was not hard to win. The wedding day was set, and she, Metje, and the mother were busy from morning till night in making ready the store of household linen, which was the married portion of all well-to-do brides. Ebba's services with the wheel were also put into requisition, and part of her spinning woven into towels, which, after a fancy of Metje's, had a pattern of little fish all over them, were known for generations as the mermaid's towels. But this is running far in advance of my story. 
Amid this press of occupation, Ebba was necessarily left to herself more than formerly, and some dormant sense of loneliness, perhaps, made her turn to Wurst as a friend. He had taken a fancy to her at the first, the sort of fancy which a manly youth sometimes takes to a helpless child, and had always treated her kindly. Now she grew to feel for him a degree of attachment which she showed for no one else. In the evening, when tired after the day's fishing, he sat half asleep by the fire, she would crouch on the floor beside him, watching his every movement, and perfectly content if, on waking, he threw her a word or patted her hair carelessly. She sometimes neglected to fill the father's glass or fetch his pipe, but never Wurst's, and she heard his footsteps coming up from the dyke long before anyone else in the house could catch the slightest footfall. The strict watch which the family had at first kept over their singular inmate had gradually relaxed, and Ebba was suffered to go in and out at her will. She rarely ventured beyond the house enclosure, however, but was fond of sitting on the low wall of the sheepfold and looking off at the sea, which, now that the flood had subsided, was at a long distance from the house, and at such moments her eyes looked larger, wilder, and more wistful than ever. As the time for the wedding drew near, Wurst fell into the way of absenting himself a good deal from home. There were errands to be done, he said, but as these errands always took him over to the little island of Urk, where lived a certain pretty Olla Tronk, who was Jacqueline's great friend and her chosen bridesmaiden, the sisters naturally teased him a good deal about them. Ebba did not, of course, understand these jokings, but she seemed to feel instinctively that something was in the air. She grew restless. The old unhappy moan came back to her lips. Only when Vorst was at home did she seem more contented. Three days before the marriage, Olla arrived to help in the last preparations. She was one of the handsomest girls in the neighbourhood, and besides her beauty was an heiress, for her father, whose only child she was, owned large tracts of pasture on the mainland, as well as the greater part of the island of Urk where he had a valuable dairy. The family crowded to the door to welcome Olla. She came in with Wurst, who had rode over to Urk for her, tall, blooming, with flaxen tresses hanging below her waist, and a pair of dancing hazel eyes fringed with long lashes. Wurst was almost as good-looking in his way. They made a very handsome couple. And this must be the stranger maiden of whom Wurst has so often told me, said Olla, after the first greetings had been exchanged. She smiled at Ebba, and tried to take her hand, but the elfish creature frowned, retreated, and, when Olla persisted, snatched her hand away with an angry gesture, and put it behind her back. "'Why does she dislike me so?' asked Olla, discomfited and grieved, for she had meant to be kind. Oh, she doesn't dislike thee, she couldn't, cried peace-loving Jacqueline. But Ebba did dislike Olla, though no one understood why. She would neither go near nor look at her if she could help it, and when, in the evening, she and Wurst sat on the doorstep talking together in low tones, Ebba hastened out, placed herself between them, and tried to push Olla away, uttering pitiful little wailing cries. What does ail her? asked Jacqueline. Medja made no answer, but she looked troubled. She felt that there was sorrow ahead for Ebba, or for Wurst, 
and she loved them both the wedding day dawned clear and cloudless as a marriage day should jacqueline in her bravery of stiff gilded headdress with its long scarf-like veil her snowy bodice and necklace of many-coloured beads was a dazzling figure olla was scarcely less so and she blushed and dimpled as voorst led her along in the bridal procession ebba walked behind them she too had been made fine in a scarlet bodice and a grand cap with wings like that which metra wore but she did not seem to care that she was so well dressed her sad eyes followed the forms of olla and voorst and as she limped painfully along after them she moaned continually to herself a low inarticulate wordless murmur like the sound of the sea following the marriage mass came the marriage feast goodman height sat at the head of the table the mother at the foot and side by side the newly wedded pair opposite them sat voorst and olla his expression of triumph satisfaction and her blushes and demurely contented glances had not been unobserved by the guests so no one was very much surprised when in the midst of the festivity the father rose and knocked with his tankard on the table to ensure silence neighbors and kinsfolk one marriage maketh another saith the old proverb and we are like to prove it a true one i hereby announce that with consent of parents on both sides my son voorst is troth plight with olla the daughter of my old friend tronk who sits here slapping tronk on the shoulder and i would now ask you to drink with me a high health to the young couple suiting the action to the word he filled the glass with hollands raised it pronounced a toast a high health to voorst height and his bride olla tronk and swallowed the spirits at a draught ebba who against her will had been made to sit at the board among the other guests had listened to this speech with no understanding of its meaning but as she listened to the laughter and applause which followed it and saw people slapping voorst on the back with loud congratulations and shaking hands with olla she raised her head with a flash of interest she watched voorst rise in his place with olla by his side while the rest reseated themselves she heard him utter a few sentences what they meant she knew not but he looked at olla and when after draining his glass he turned put his arm round olla's neck drew her head close to his own and their lips met in a kiss some meaning of the ceremony seemed to burst upon her she started from her seat for one moment she stood motionless with dilated eyes and parted lips then she gave a long wild cry and fled from the house what is the matter who screamed asked old height who had observed nothing it is nothing the poor dumb child over there answered his wife metje looked anxiously at the door the duties of hospitality held her to her place she will come in presently and i will comfort her she thought to herself but ebba never came in again when metje was set free to search all trace of her had vanished as suddenly and mysteriously as she had come into their lives she had passed out of them again no one had seen her go forth from the door no trace could be found of her on land or sea only an old fisherman who was drawing his nets that day at a little distance from the shore averred that just after high noon he had noticed a shape wearing a fluttering garment like that of a woman pass over the ridge 
of the dike just where it made a sudden curve to the left. He had had the curiosity to row that way after his net was safely pulled in, for he wanted to see if there was a boat lying there, or what could take anyone to so unlikely a spot. But neither boat nor woman could be found, and he half fancied that he must have fallen asleep in broad daylight and dreamed for a moment. However that might be, Ebba was gone, nor was anything ever known of her again. Metcher mourned her loss, all the more that Jacqueline's departure left her with no mate of her own age in the household. Little Karen cried for Ebba for a night or two. The vrouw missed her aid in the spinning. But Vorst, absorbed in his happiness, scarcely noticed her absence, and Olla was glad. Gradually she grew to be a tradition in the neighbourhood, handed down from one generation to another, even to this day, and nobody ever knew whence she came, or where she went, or whether it was a mortal maiden, or one of the children of the strange, solemn sea-folk, who was cast so curiously upon the hands of the kindly Friesland family, and dwelt in their midst for two speechless years. End of A Child of the Sea Folk End of Just Sixteen by Susan Coolidge